You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. We are kindly supported by theater acoustics and digital design consultancy Charcoal Blue. Hi, I'm Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends, people who love theater so much that today we didn't plan it, but we wore matching outfits. You know what? Sometimes you spend so much time together, and then you start dressing up like Tweedledee and Tweedledum from Alice in Wonderland, and then before you know it, you're like singing and dancing in unison, and your life becomes a musical. Or like thing one, thing two. Oh, not Doctor Seuss thing, right? Mm-hmm. But why said Alice in Wonderland? Because the Disney movie has songs they sing. Yeah, that's true. But I was thinking, but they have like the worst outfits. <laughs> thing one, thing two, or Tweedledee? Well, both of them. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have to come up with a better. When I was a teenager, I worked at Disneyland for a summer as um, I, I just sold merchandise, and I wore a very similar version of the Tweedledee and Tweedledum outfit as one of my uniforms. That's cute. Yeah, it was it was really fugly and not fashionable, but also very cute at the same time. <laughs> the fun thing about working at Disney, even when you just when you're just selling merchandise, is you still have to wear costumes because they have a uniform. And what about during the summer? Like if you work in Fantasyland, like I had, I had my little skirt and like my little frilly blouse with like flower embroidery on it and a vest. It was a whole thing. Wow. Yes. Well, I don't even know what it is. It's like we went like on a whole other podcast. Anyway, back to our podcast. Yeah. If you ever, if you if you ever want to wear costumes, work for Disney yes. or be an actor. That's also true. <laughs> anyway, on this episode, we are reviewing some shows. What are we reviewing? We are starting with what the Constitution means to me, which is now open on Broadway. Yay! Yay indeed. And then we're going to talk about Plano at Club Thumb. Currently at the Connolly. Uh, we were supposed to talk about one more show, but the MTA screwed Jose over this week, and he could not not make it to the show. Sorry, the third show that we should we yeah. could not review. But you know what? The great thing is now y'all get a shorter episode. Yay! And we also have an interview with a Philadelphia-based theater artist today. Who do we talk to? We talked to fabulous Alice York. Of Lightning Rod special. She talked to us about her new, well, their new play, The Appointment. And we're going to get to the interview after our review. Yeah. Putting the. Uh... Do not make. <laughs> do, don't go there. No. No, no, no. Let's just go into what the And then at the end of the show, after Jose tells me not to make bad puns using the word abortion. No! And at the end of the show, we'll be talking about the Pulitzer. So it is all ladies all the time on this episode, which is amazing. And the and it should always be about women because women are more interesting, frankly. I completely agree. Yeah. Yep, yep. Anyway. 
Speaking of women, let's... Oh, who's introducing what? I don't even know, because, like, we both love what the Constitution means to me. It was your favorite show of 2018. I adore it to death. I don't even know what to say about this show. Okay, then. Well, first, (laughs) what the Constitution means to me is currently running on Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theater. It is... It is written by and performed by Heidi Schreck, who is a very well-known downtown uh, theater artist. Uh, She's an actor and a playwright. And she wrote this show about the speech that she gave when she was 15, because she had to talk about how the Constitution personally relates to her, and she won prize money for it. And she recreates that speech and the process. She also dives deep into the history of mental illness and spousal abuse in her family and talks about how perhaps the reason why domestic abuse and against women and violence against women is so normalized is perhaps because women's bodies were left out of the constitution and so if women are nothing in the eyes of the law then we would be it's no surprise that we would then be treated as nothing by the men in our lives and then at the end she has a live on stage debate with with a local teenager from New York City and it's amazing oh my god I love this show so much I know and you know because we we've seen it plenty of times how many times have you seen it I think we how many times have you seen it I've seen it three times I've seen it three times all right uh and we did a talk back with Heidi back in the fall last year we talked about it in the end of the year episode so I guess to bring a new take to what the constitution means to me considering we've seen it so many times what you know why did you notice on Broadway that it didn't see before because wait you saw it two times off and one time on right mm-hmm. right it's so interesting to see the evolution of a show because but for this show off Broadway I felt I felt it was like a little bit more reserved like I think because like she had Heidi had just started performing it like that year and so she was still like working her way through it and I think like seeing it on Broadway like I saw her become a lot more comfortable with the material and there's just some she there's like a lot more pausing for laughter and and a lot more emphasis on like certain you know on certain sections of the play that she wanted you to focus on or maybe that was also because I had seen it so many times that I caught little but more nuances I didn't catch before. I'm not entirely sure what it was. But I love that you said that, because that's exactly what I was going to say. She looks like she's having so much fun on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Like, she was so loose. And, I mean, one of my favorite moments, the, the, the day I saw it on Broadway, was that she made, you know, the, one of the most mind-blowing things about what the Constitution means to me, because both of us have seen it, both of us have read the actual script, mm-hmm. is how tight the show is. Yes. Everything is so precise and so perfectly, you know, arranged, and it has, like, this, like, delicious beat. Mm-hmm. However, it's one of those plays where, and I think this is testament to how great Heidi is as a writer, 
it feels like she's making it up every night. Yes, like every night. Like it feels like there's certain, I'm, and I'm not sure if it's like an artificial pause or if it's like organic at this point because I always get this feeling every time I've seen her do it that she's not gonna, like she may stop at any point and just become so overwhelmed because there is some heavy shit that she's talking about, and I think it's also a testament to her ability as an actor to make us believe that. Like she is on a point of collapse. Yes, when I saw the show on Broadway, she she made this like joke about which I don't remember it being in the script or any of the times I saw the show before, where she said something about I think there was like I don't remember what happened. There was like a line, a pause or something like a weird pause happened, and she said something about the structure of the show. Oh yeah, like, yeah. She's like, oh, she, she did that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's, like, it's, it's scripted. But isn't that cool? Like she can't change it. I think because I'm I'm paraphrasing, but the line is unlike what you may have heard. This show is very carefully crafted. Yes, that was not a problem. <laughs> no. Yes, yes, I, I, yeah, I. See that I love that, and I've been thinking about that forever. And I mean, yeah, obviously you can hear us, and you can listen how much we do love this show, and. I don't necessarily think that Broadway is the ultimate goal mm-hmm. for anyone, really. You know, as long as you make interesting theater, you can. I, I'm gonna go see you, like, do it anywhere you're doing it. But it was just so beautiful to see this show in particular go to Broadway. Like, it felt like a homecoming in a way. It felt like a, a ch- and it felt. I don't think it's a homecoming because I don't think like people. Like she ever intended it to go to Broadway, or like Broadway isn't the pinnacle of the show's no, existence. No, no, no. Yeah. But it was kind of like you know the victory lap in Rocky. Yes, that. Yeah. But with this came the other aspect of you know that I really found really interesting when I saw it on Broadway, and it's Broadway audiences are not off Broadway audiences. No. On Broadway, we were surrounded. Like I took my seventeen-year-old niece to see the show. And we were like, maybe like a handful of people of color in there. Mm-hmm. While at New York Theater Workshop, I remember how diverse and how vibrant and how beautiful the audience was because there were people, you know, who looked like New Yorkers, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Not just like opera designers and like stuffy old rich people. I'm also wondering because we do sit in the orchestra when we get these, you know, very exclusive seats, and so I wonder if the mezzanine is a lot more diverse. Oh, I was, I stayed outside, and I was, no, it was a, a oh. waterfall, a cascade of white people. Oh, uh, that's, that's such a shame, because I, I think, like, an integral element of the show is not is not just, like, Heidi's own story about the past, but also, like, her looking forward into the future and looking, and looking towards, like, the new... Who who are going to be the new leaders of this country, which are going to be you know people of color and women, and what do, what do they have to say about where we've been and where we should we go? And so an integral part of the show is having like a young girl like debate her on stage the question of should we abolish the constitution? And it's like two young women of color, and they alternate every night, and they're not act they're not, they're not professional actors. And they're civically minded teenagers to remind you that this is not conceptual. This is real, and like people love to say, um, you know, oh, that it's like this doesn't. It's like politics. I'm in the news. It doesn't affect me. These laws don't affect me. And the laws that they're making will, will affect your body, but it will affect other people's body. And you choosing to not pay attention to it is endemic of your own 
privilege and ignorance, and you, you can choose not to. Yeah, the selling part, I guess, about what you're talking about is because you see it reflected in the audience during the moment in the show when they're debating whether to abolish or to um, keep the Constitution. And you could just hear, I'm, I'm not sure if it happened mm-hmm. in your performance, but you could see most of the white people get like, like you know, holds onto their seats and like clench their teeth and clutch their pearls mm-hmm. every time, you know, uh, especially when the young uh, women of color. I uh, saw, who, oh, and who would you see? I saw Rose Daly. Okay, I saw Thursday Williams. Have you seen Thursday all three times? No, I've seen I've seen Thursday twice. I've okay. seen Rose Daly once, okay. and they have like different energies. Thursday's a lot more. She she's gonna be like a politician when she grows up. She attacks it totally. And Rosalie has this like incredible charisma, though, mm-hmm. and she belongs on the stage. But anyway, my point about this was that whenever Rosalie would say something about you know like let's abolish the Constitution, you could see like all this like Upper East Side rich white people just like oh you know like oh, and then I was like I remember at New York Theater Workshop because there was a much more diverse audience. You could hear cheers and support for both sides. Mm-hmm. While on Broadway, you can see that you know the audience's interest is in you know greed and keeping the money and just like keeping the status quo as it is. Wait, wait. Uh, the night that you went, did because um, usually every time I've, I've gone, like Heidi, Heidi was always the one who argued for abolishing the Constitution, and the and her debate partner was the one who argued for keeping it. And so, was this was it the same one the night you went? I. Remember Rosdelli being the one who wanted to abolish it. Really? Oh my god! I could have sworn that they picked the same side every night. Am I crazy? I think that's what. what? Yeah, because I remember my niece and I were both cheering for Rosdelli because we were like abolish this thing. Oh yeah. wow! Because I think like my audience, like they cheered mostly for Thursday, but she was arguing for um, Keep- keeping it. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, we're probably going to have to see this show one more time at least. So, yeah, multiple. I've only seen it three times. I don't know if I should see it again. I feel like that's groupie-esque. Well, I mean, <laughs> if we're going to be if we're gonna be modern rent heads for anything, I think this is a show worth mm-hmm. being a kind of hardcore fan of. And then what do you think of, like, the presence of, like, the male energy in the performance? Because that's one thing I actually didn't appreciate as much like the previous times I saw it and that really came through for me like the third time which is like that balance of talking about how this isn't, isn't such a just a woman's issue of femininity it's also an issue of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. I mean I always saw that like I remember just the, the first time I saw it just walking in and oh, there's one male character yeah in the show who's a queer man yeah who's so. yeah, played by Mike Eidson and he's yeah. sitting there the entire time yeah, you know, like, talk. I love him. Like I've seen him mm-hmm. many times, and he always brings this like warmth to the stage that I've never felt threatened by him. So even the first time I saw him, I always felt that there was going to be a twist with this character, mm-hmm. which then there is one. But also, you know, like I don't know. I I was always annoyed at all the pictures of all those like dead men in the back. It's such a and creepy set. It's so creepy. We've been on that set. Yes, and it was as creepy up close as it is from wherever you're sitting. And so I don't know, you know, I don't think my, my take on the male energy has changed. I guess on Broadway there were also way more white men 
which uh, worked perfectly because when at the end of the show they ask us to imagine where the white male lawmakers will mm-hmm. we work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're all they're all around us. We're all there. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean. I don't know, I love the show. Just take a person of color to see it. And take a young person of color to see it. Mm-hmm. And if you're feeling depressed about the state of our American electoral system, and the great thing about the ending portion is, like, they say something different every night because it is a live debate. And I remember in my performance, Thursday said that if you feel if you're feeling left out by the system or aggravated or frustrated don't just talk about destroying it or don't just like kick your heels up and do nothing like take action run for local office like actively become the change you know you want to see in the world and that and i forget sometimes that there are younger people who will be inheriting all of this who want us all to older people to actually do something and so it's a good reminder that we all need to be modeling good behavior and hope because there are people out there who will have to deal with this when we're done with it amen that was depressing at the end i know but but thursday and ros daly are on stage and they're doing such a great job and they're gonna be able to pay for their college with the money from what the Constitution means to me, which is currently running on Broadway at 99% capacity. That's a beautiful, like, cycle, like, circle. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Heidi, oh, wow. I never, now I'm going to cry. I know! Oh, that's so beautiful. So thank you, Heidi, Thursday, and Rosdelli, and Mike, because mm-hmm. you're doing magic on stage. Yeah. And you're proving that you don't need a celebrity or be a white dude in order to sell a play on Broadway. So. Amen. Yay, and we're all happy. All right, uh, What the Constitution Means to Me runs until July 20th, and tickets are 49 to $169, and I've been told by the producers that they're also taking donations so that they can underwrite tickets for low-income and uh, marginalized young people. To and to Yeah, do if you if can afford an orchestra seat, you should be underwriting those tickets. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Next show. Okay, you intro plane out. I will. So speaking of ghostly male forces oppressing women in Plano at the Connolly Theater, we meet three sisters living in a town in Texas. It is Texas, right? Uh, yeah, it's Texas. It's but Dallas. Plano, Texas is not a real place, right? Plano's a real place. It is? Yes. Mind blown. Anyway. <laughs> I am. Anyway. In Plano, right? Yeah, the, the Will Arbery's from Plano. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay, anyway. I'm sorry, Texas. I don't know anything about your geography. Anyway, I do know about this show because I saw it. So we meet three sisters who are, you know, traditional, like, play style, just like hanging out of their home talking about like, their problems, and then we start realizing that all of them have men in their lives who are just giving them a really hard time. One of them is married to a gay dude, who her sisters think wants her just for the green card. Uh, another one is married to a guy who's like some sort of artist, like sculpture, mm-hmm. and he's like pretty lame, right? I don't know, what the, he's like a total stacker. Yeah. He's just like doing his art at home all the then time. Then he leads her. Yeah. And then we have the other sister who's in a slightly sinister relationship 
with Jesus and religion. Mm-hmm. And she's saintly and she doesn't know if she wants to get married. She's already married to religion. And then a lot of things start happening. This is a show that's very hard, I feel, to describe because a part of its charm and part of what makes it really good is discovering, you know, all the little twists as you sit there and actually watch it because, you know, it plays with time, it plays with space, Mm -hmm. it goes from, like, naturalism to surrealism in, like, two seconds. Mm -hmm. And it's, I I don't know, it's this, like, ensemble piece, but it's also about the set and also about, like, the props and also about the audience and how the audience reacts. It's basically, I think, everything that makes it worth going to the theater. I love playing it. Would you ever go there? Not to the Texas one. I would go see the show again. <laughs> What's in the real Plano? Slugs? Oh, oh, my those were real? <laughs> no idea. I would go because like, they keep mentioning like a really fun like, gay club. Yeah, what, what I really liked about this is like, it's like about microaggressions against women. It's about like all those tiny little things that women are told to do, which is, you know, to be deferential and, and to be, and to told to just be, yes, a relationship can be unsatisfying and, you know, and negative to your self-esteem, but it's better than being alone. Like, the, a man doesn't have to abuse you in order for it to be an oppressive space. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I really loved about the play, which is, like, it just talked about, like, those little things that make life really unsatisfying for women in relationships with certain men the play doesn't use the phrase emotional labor, but like it really comes across. That's so interesting. Because this was one of those shows where I was more focused on the form of it mm. than the actual content. So all of this that you're saying, I'm like, yeah, I was nodding all along. I was like, yeah, yeah. Because I was more captivated by the form. Oh, it, the form is, yeah. Yeah, it reminded me, it made me think of... Uh, you know, three women and how that movie turns this, like, three female characters in a similarly, like, desolated place where I can remember, like, in that movie you can feel, like, the heat of the place and how, like, dry it feels. Mm-hmm. And then, like, that, it's this, like, metaphysical, like, spiritual thing where they, like, become, I don't know, like, where they don't know anymore basically where they are and what time and space are. And that's what I was so compelled by when I went to Plano. How I love the moments when they're like, yeah, so maybe we're going to talk about it later. And then the other Now it's later. Yeah, the other like, now it's later. And you're like, holy crap, like, you know, like, where does time go? But that was so brilliant because it made me think about, you know, I left the show. It's so funny. But I left the show feeling very haunted by these women and all the things they had to give up, that they were forced to give up because of the way they were raised. Because at one point we also meet, you know, mm-hmm. mom. And we are so, you know, like we see how they have wasted their lives in many ways because they're attached to this, like, bullshit men. Yeah, like when you talk about the form, I actually, it was kind of like, you know, like fast forwarding through a movie. Yes. Well, it's kind of like, oh, there's all this in-between stuff is boring. I'm just going to fast forward to, like, the next plot point. And so and what I love about 
theater and at like you know at like its most like pure component is like it's talking about really universal issues but in like a very specific way like it doesn't feel like a movie it doesn't feel like television it just it feels like it it feels like it should only be what it is and this company that produced it club thumb like that's what they do club thumb is actually where what the constitution means to me originated go club thumb yeah but it's about like Plays that can only be plays because, like, you're not going to see three years in the span of ninety minutes on one set in a movie unless it's like some Darren Aronofsky experimental, you know, bullshit. That's probably not going to get very good reviews. Yeah. Or in television, like mm-hmm. you know, like the the time shifts made me feel like when you're maybe you know back in the day when people didn't stream and we had to watch things, you know, either when they aired or, like, as reruns, it made me think of the times when, like, maybe you would be out of town, like, one week and miss an episode of your favorite show, but then something had happened during that episode, mm-hmm. and when you cut off, you didn't know what you had missed, because mm-hmm. there was no way to go see it. So those, like, time shifts when you're like, now it's later, and you're like, wait, what happened in between is fine. It made me think of that, and you're right. I mean, TV could not do this. But I think the playwright and the uh, director, Taylor Reynolds, did such a great job of capturing emotions that people know and mm-hmm. feeling, you know, like, because I never felt unsettled. Like, I got it no, right I, away. Yeah. They're not trying to, like, make you uncomfortable and, like, mm-hmm. puke all over. Yeah, it's not like an Ava Van Hove shit. Yeah. Like, they, they want you to be, they want you to be familiar with the feeling of the play but mm-hmm. to show you unfamiliar themes, maybe. Uh, unfamiliar, like, presentation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved all of the female actresses. Yes. Crystal Finn, Sus- Susanna Flood, and Miriam Silverman. It's, I feel like it must be so hard to be an actor in, the, in this, like, weird, like, semi-naturalistic but not space, but also still try to make it relatable to us in the audience. Mm. And so I think they balanced that really well. We're able to make the leap with them because they believe it. Mm-hmm. They're so committed. Like, I yeah. love Miriam Silverman is one of my favorite stage actress. Like one of my favorite performances ever, I would say, was her turn in Anna Ziegler's A Delicate Ship from a few years ago. Mm. And she has this knack for... I also saw her do a workshop of a Matt Schatz play at the O'Neill Center. And she's so great at this kind of thing. Like, she knows how to manipulate time. Not making her sound like freaking Melisandre or something. <laughs> but she knows how to manipulate time on stage in a way that's so compelling because she's so... She's funny. She can be, like, angry. You know, like, she, mm-hmm. she, she hits, like, all the right notes. But she also always, like, extends a hand for you to come along with her. And she's so brilliant. Question. Do you find the John character as the only person of color on stage? Was he a little bit tokenized? Mm, I would say, uh, no, I, I didn't feel that. Like, I loved Juan so much. Because <laughs> you also don't get to see that kind of Hispanic character on stage. I mean, we obviously, and again, like you were talking about religion earlier and what religion does to people. And I couldn't shake off the fact that, you know, none of the sisters really trust one and that's also you know like they're freaking like Plano Texas like they probably only know 
Mexicans, you know, they probably think that people of color, they're all Mexicans, okay. and they all want, like, green cards, and they all want to cross the border, and they all mm-hmm. want to, like, take over. You know, I couldn't help but see that Juan was just a projection of what they thought people of color and Latinos were. So I did not feel that um, it was he was tokenized. And in fact, uh, Cesar J. Rosado, who plays Juan, I thought was so brilliant. Yeah, he didn't get enough screen time. Because I don't really think like being closeted is an entirely... It's not a negative condemnation of a person, especially when you live in backwater Texas. Yeah, or when you're Latino. Yeah, but like, there's so much there. There's so much there in comparison to, to the other men. But remember that then there's another twist where we find out where the show might actually be happening, and then it makes sense that it's all about the sisters' nightmares. Mm-hmm. So that's why I know I, I love the character. Okay. Well, g- give it a try and let us know what you think. Uh Plano is playing that. Plano is playing until May 11th. It just got extended, Ooh. and tickets are forty five dollars. Oh wow! And the car yeah. is a beautiful theater. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's so affordable, and you might as well do fun things in ninety minutes. It's so much fun. So much fun. Okay, let's intro Alice York. Tell us about the dancing fetuses. Well, they can see them on the podcast. But anyway, we talked to Alice York about Lightning Rod Special's new play, The Appointment, and it's about abortion, but Alice has really interesting things to say, so let's go listen to what she has to say. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. For the people who haven't seen The Appointment Mm -hmm. yet, can you describe what the show is? Sure. Um, So The Appointment is a musical satire of the hypocrisy, absurdity, and misogyny in the American abortion debate. That's the quick and dirty. (laughs) (laughs) I love how much humor there is in the show. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was like, oh, God, this sounds like it's going to be dark. And it has its dark moments, obviously. But I love in the script, for instance, there's this nuance that mm. I made me think of Romanian cinema mm. and how it shows us, like, real life and how you find humor in the daily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why was it important for you to have that in the in the show? Yeah. Well, I, I, I was getting – I guess I'm really interested in – um, satire and in seeing if humor and provocation can like have a place in serious issues. And, um, I, I think they do because I think like, especially in an issue like abortion where you sort of know how you feel or probably know how you maybe think you know how you feel. Um, it's easy to get quite set in that. And so I wanted to do something that was going to be a little bit jostling um, and a little unexpected because I think that sort of jostling like can help you shift maybe a little bit and have a different perspective on a thing that you thought you already knew about. Um, and yeah, just like you said, like abortion isn't a topic that most people think of, of finding humor in. Um, but, you know, like uh, other medical procedures... 
there there is or there can be. Well, there's something darkly funny about a bunch of men telling women that they oh can't my God. <laughs> have abortion. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, for this piece, you, you all have been doing it, researching it for three years. Yeah, right. And so, like, what kind of work did you do at abortion clinics to research mm-hmm. for it? Yeah. So I got connected in Philadelphia with a few different organizations. One group is a funding organization. They help connect people and people who are needing abortion care but can't afford it with funds. Um, um, So I got connected with them, and they let me come into their office and listen in on their helplines. And uh, they told me about the stories that people who call them tell and the way that their system works. Like, Mm -hmm. why do we need abortion funds to begin with? How do they figure out how much money to give? How much money do procedures cost? And they also gave me a ton of research materials like books and DVDs and websites. And and they also then connected me with an independent clinic in Philly. Mm-hmm. So then I got to go into this clinic and um, observe, their, observe their office. Both like, what, is, what does it look like in the waiting room? And... I got to sit in their break room and listen to the conversations the nurses and physicians assistants have. But then I also got to shadow patients. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got to sit in with a patient in her um, advocacy session, which is a time where the clinic and the patient get to talk to each other and say, like, this is what the procedure is like. Do you have questions? More than medical questions, like, do you have emotional questions? Do you want a squeeze ball? Um, do you get nauseous? Would you like some like lavender or something to smell? Uh, who's going to drive you home? Are you doing, are you going to go get lunch afterwards? Where like, mm-hmm. it's both a chance to get like making sure that somebody is like mentally prepared and also a chance to say like, here's what's going on. So I got to watch a few patient advocacy sessions and then I got connected with a patient who let me shadow her whole day in the clinic. So we would sit together in the waiting room and I got to watch her advocacy session and then more sitting in the waiting room and then paying, sitting in the waiting room, more waiting, and then eventually like getting an ultrasound and getting her procedure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then I, I got that experience was really important because many of the scenes in the show are written based directly on those observations around like, what happens in the waiting room? What happens when you get an ultrasound? What does the doctor have to tell you legally? And then what happens ultimately when you get an abortion? Um, so I got to, I got connected with a few different local clinics back in Philly um, to see what are some of the nuances at different clinics, but then also like what are the overarching things that remain pretty well the same. Right. Was there a moment when you were doing your research, maybe you noticed a rhythm in how the nurses maybe moved in the clinic mm-hmm. or the way people talk and the way their body moved that you went, this is my entry point mm. to how I want to write the show. Totally. Um, yeah. I like looking at my, um, like how people move in time. Um, like even when I was a kid, I remember taking a test and being like, look, three people just got up to use the pencil sharpener. Like, boom, 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 boom. I don't know. I just always was, like, totally obsessed with um, those, like, measures. You know, like, in a waiting room, somebody flips a magazine at the same time that somebody is, like, scratching their arm. So I was definitely watching for those things. 
but one of the things that was most like most sort of vibrant like that was I was standing, I was in one of the hallways and it was maybe December. It was, I think it was December and, um, there were Christmas music playing on the, on the, it was like piped in Christmas music and a little Christmas tree with condoms on it and like, um, like birth control pills on it. I was like, Oh man, this is so good because it's so every day. Like your eye doctor has a Christmas tree with glasses on it and your physical therapist is playing Christmas music. Like every doctor's office you go to is, it has that kind of thing. So that was a moment for me when I was like, Oh, it's just normal. Mm-hmm. It's just normal. And it takes five minutes. It takes five minutes. Five minutes, and 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 one of the th- one of the other things I was watching is that like I saw a doctor say like, and you'll be in this room for five minutes. I was like, oh, they're emphasizing with their words and this one gesture of like five minutes, and so now that's that's in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I feel like with America, the American abortion debate, especially you know in the past couple of months, like it's either. Yeah, you either have one extreme where mm-hmm. one side just lies and says yeah. they want to kill babies when yeah. they're born, and the, and the other side not saying anything at all about it or just couching it as you know women's health issue. Yeah. And so what? And in the research for this, like, what have you noticed that should be talked about that no one's talking about? Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that's going on, I think you bring up a really great point, which is that like the pro life side has really um f- good rhetoric good like um fanatic rhetoric in in killing babies mm-hmm. um and that like nobody wants to kill babies that's incredibly difficult to argue with um and so there's a there's a shift happening in in the abortion rights movement to move away from talking about it as pro-choice, this my body, my choice rhetoric that we've used for so long puts it as like me alone in the world. I get to make a decision for only me. Um, and instead there's a, there's a movement toward looking at it from, um, from, from a perspective that acknowledges the way abortion is centered in much the way like intersectional feminism is like abortion is not a single siloed issue. It is connected to education. It's connected to race. It's connected to class. It's connected to, do you have access to food, to healthcare, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a group, there's a, a framework begun by women of color called reproductive justice, um, that really centers people of color and queer people in the abortion debate and says like, um, that those are groups who are focused on community health Mm -hmm. and looking at abortion as a part of community health and the specific impacting factors for people of color and queer people and how that, how that intersects with, um, with abortion care. And so that for me was a, was a real, like was a real eye opening experience to begin to look at abortion care as, as part of a larger network of social issues and, and one that, I mean, hugely disproportionately affects 
some groups of people more than others. Mm-hmm. Have there been any instances where somebody in the audience came and maybe the, the watching the appointment made them change how they felt about abortion and they, they come talk to you and they were like, thank you. For- oh my God. Um, we had a really incredible, I- I'm thinking of two experiences that we had at the run we just did in Philadelphia. We, um, had a post-show conversation with a, a group of audience members and a guy, uh, w- a, like an older white guy was kept raising his hand and kept asking questions and was like really very engaged, like very sat forward, was asking really nuanced questions. And finally he said, he's like, well, I came to the show three days ago with my friend and I didn't know what to expect. And I came back to see it again today because I was so turned around and I was so jumbled and I was so confused and you've really got me thinking. And he just was like talking about how he, he hadn't stopped thinking about the show and he'd always... um been in favor of abortion access as a theoretical idea. He was like, yes, mm-hmm. of course. But from watching the show and hearing people talk about it and him doing his own processing, he really began, he talked about beginning to feel like he really understood and had some more empathy for the issue and for people who are going through that, that decision. Um, and we were having a conversation with Allentown Women's Center, which is a clinic um, just north of Philadelphia. And he was like, I live in Allentown. I live like five blocks away from you. And then connected with the people from the clinic afterwards and signed up to volunteer with them, which was Mm -hmm. so huge. And then I'm thinking about another person as well who who came up um, to me after the show and sent me an email later and just said, you... You, you made me feel less alone. This show made me feel less alone. And those two experiences were like, <laughs> oh, that's like all, that's all you can hope for when you make art. Mm, thank mm-hmm. you for sharing it. So yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Oh, yeah. So lightning rod special. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have found the company mm-hmm. and it's based in Philadelphia and you all have come. This is your, this is your second time in New York with a show. The mm-hmm. first being, you know, underground railroad game, which one, which one and Obi. Mm-hmm. So we're very excited to like welcome mm-hmm. you here again. But tell us about like how you found the company and mm-hmm. why. Yeah. So I founded the company with, um, Scott. Shepard, Mason Rosenthal, Katie Gould, and Jen Kidwell. And we, some of us were in the Pig Iron School in Philadelphia together. Mm -hmm. And so we graduated, we were part of the first class of students way back in 2013. (laughs) So young! I I know. (laughs) We were were more more naive back then. It was a happy So many emotional lifetimes ago. Those days, 2013. So in shiny bright 2013, 2012, we, we met and we made a show together and, um, we're like, oh yeah, we really liked working together. We liked, we had a really, um, like some really shared interests in how to make theater and like, uh, we, we loved collaborating and the process of group writing and ensemble making and um, like pushing, not settling for one good idea and sort of pushing towards something that might be beyond that. And uh, 
so yeah, we decided to we decided to make it a formal thing. Um, and we made a few shows before we were like, oh, I'm starting to see a link between the work that we're making. That's the shows that we made were suddenly we we're like, oh, they're all about how do we look at the world and how do we participate in the world and using theater as a mechanism for like moving through that process of being human and like being human next to another human mm-hmm. more than more than like um, telling a beautiful story going from point A to point Q um, that we were like m- became realized we were more interested that one of our shared interests was was like using theater as an investigative tool and that's you know among the shows uh, that led us to uh, Underground Railroad Game and you know now to this show yeah Light Fair Light Fair yeah 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 <laughs> It sounds almost like the scientific process, though. Yeah, that's right. That's how we talk about it. It's like a lab. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. That's that's in all of our grant applications. Where does the appointment go after New York City? Oh, man. Um, I don't know yet, but I, but I want it to go somewhere. Yeah, I hope the show has a life after this. One of the one of the reasons we worked to bring the show here to New York was so that it could find more life after this. It's wonderful because even yeah. the Phantom of the Theater wants yes. to see it. Yeah, you do too. <laughs> yeah. Come. Yeah, I know about five states where you should be going yeah, right? to. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so, so much, thanks. Alice, for joining Thank us. You. And would you like to invite our, our viewers and yes. our listeners also for yes. the podcast to come see the appointment? Definitely. Yes. Thanks so much for watching and for listening. And I hope you come see the appointment at New York Theatre Workshop next door, uh, April 18th through May 4th. You might laugh. Yeah, they're singing fetuses. <laughs> <laughs> there are. No, no spoilers. And now, a word from our sponsor, Charcoal Blue. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats? Great views of the stage? A line for the toilet that doesn't take you out onto the sidewalk? <laughs> I've been there, and that's why I no longer drink before I go to the theater. In truth, though, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad, over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performance Arts Center at the World Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals Innovate at any scale and any budget. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at at charcoalblue. It's not boring black charcoal, it's charcoal blue. Hey, how how do you become a Pulitzer Committee member? And can Jose and I be on? Hi, bye. Hi. 
Hi. Hi. But if we're community members, does it make us hmm? eligible for public service? Probably that year, right? Probably that year. Okay. Yeah. So we want Pulitzers. We would like Pulitzers, yes. Yes. Someone, someone nominate us for the someone, commentary category. And someone can play us in a movie later about, and then it's going to be this great scene where we win our Pulitzers. Yay! And the $15,000. Oh, that's what they gave you? Yes. I just won an award. Yeah, you also get money. Well, that's, that's even better. Mm-hmm. Money is always good. And that's why on today's 11 o'clock number, where we just talk about the things that the tune that's stuck in our head this week... We're talking about the Pulitzers, where, fun fact, they used to get, winners used to get $10,000, and they now get fifteen. Yeah, inflation. <laughs> yeah, the Pulitzer was just announced uh, on Monday, and the winner this year in drama was Fairview by Jacqueline Sibley's Drury, which we talked about uh when did we talk about it? During the summer last year. Yeah, when it first played. Look at us knowing what is what what are good plays. I think and Fairview was on Jose's top. It was my second favorite show last year. Mm-hmm. I love Fairview to that. And the finalist this year was Dance Nation by Claire Barron and What the Constitution Means to Me by Heidi Shrek. Yay. Both of which were on my top list last year. So hey, we know good plays. Why aren't we on the Pulitzer Committee? I was so happy to see that because I remember I wanted, I mean, I've even tweeted this, like I wanted Heidi or Jackie to win the Pulitzer because those plays... Someone's reading your Twitter account. Maybe the Pulitzer committee's reading reading your Twitter account. Hi, Pulitzer committee. Anyway, so I was so happy because it was like one of those things that never happens. Like, I mean, God, we sound like nerds. Like the Pulitzer's like our sports kind of. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're nerds. Anyway... Yeah, and I was like, I really want one of them to win. And then, like, they both kind of won, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They're all winners. Everyone's a winner. Everyone's yeah. a winner. Only one gets 15K, but everyone's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Heidi has the Broadway money. She's fine. She's fine. But anyway, and we were just looking at the list, and Deep had some interesting facts to share with you about the... Um, Parity, I guess, with the Pulitzer, uh, with the Pulitzer prizes over the last ten years. Yeah, and I did some quick calculations before we went on the air, and out of the ten winners in the last ten years, five were women, and how many? How many were people of color? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six out of ten were people of color. Yeah, Pulitzer committee. Uh-oh. And if we're doing Pulitzer winners and finalists, and out of 31 of those, 11 were people of color, 16 were women, and fun fact, only 10 of those 31 plays have been on Broadway. Yeah. So we have some goodies ahead. So yeah, they have plays that they should be putting on Broadway, but they're not. What is that about, Broadway producers? It could happen. I know. One of my favorite things about this year's lineup of winners is that Dance Nation was what the Constitution means to be and Fairview are like this like beautiful perfect snapshot of what America is mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, have there been any other years where you could say the same 
you know, about how they have captured the moment? Um, I think 2017 was a good year. Yeah, what happened 2017? We had Sweat by Lynn Nottage, which is about factory workers. And we had Taylor Mack's 24 Decades Cycle of Popular Music, which is about American history and building community. And we have The Wolves by Sarah DeLapp. No, I, I see your point, though. It's, it's not always... Like, the things that are being nominated don't always reflect the zeitgeist so well. All these are, like, incredibly personal stories. Like, I would say Fairview is about one a family drama, a family affair, but it's also about something bigger than that. Yeah, it's about white, the white gaze on African-American people in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what could be more of the time than that? And you're right, all three shows have... Um, elements that are very abrasive and are they have elements that are very confrontational and I love that about it because they don't mm-hmm. feel they don't feel like safe choices no no and the thing is they're confrontational but it's it's kind of coming from like a personal place oh yeah totally it's not like uh, building the wall by Robert Schenken <laughs> it's like when you set out to write a drama about a political event it's not going I don't I think nine out of t- nine times out of ten, it's not going to come off as anything more than just a statement mm-hmm. rather than a human experience. And I think like these these plays, like they showcase like the lived lives of people of color in America right now, and also women. Wait, can we do another number thing? What? Can we see how many of the recent winners? Because like, also, I just realized that all the plays this year, all the leads are women. Yes. Yay. Yes. When, when else did it happen? Oh. It happened. Jesus. I'm such a nerd because I can just pull this up my, if I just look. Okay. Uh, ba 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 Women. 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 Nope. Women. Nope. Nope. None of it. None of it, actually. So is this the first time in like a really long time when all the plays are about women? Yeah. Well, it was the first time in a really long time that, that the winner was... A play that was not that featured like a woman protagonist. Wow! Yeah. Yay, Pulitzers! We're really proud of you. Yeah, You're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> keep keep up the keep up the good work, Shantae. You stay. <laughs> well, that's a happy note for once. And but also, like theater companies out there, Fairview and Dance Nation have incredible opportunities for you to cast people of color, women of color, in mm-hmm. these roles. So make it happen. Yeah, like, I think I tweeted about how if if you're programming a season and it's mostly men, you're doing it wrong. Very wrong. Because also you get all these like amazing plays about women with the Pulitzer stamp of approval, so no excuses. So produce all, produce all those plays. Except probably Hamilton, because Hamilton was the winner in 2016, and y'all are, none of you are getting my money anytime soon. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. If you like the show, leave us a review on wherever you get your podcast. And if you have questions for us, you can email them to us at tokentheaterfriends at gmail.com or tweet at us, tokentfriends, or Jose and I are also on Twitter. So you can find us 
there. Uh, and if you want to watch us interview Alice York, you can find that interview on YouTube.、Um, anything else you want to say to people? Go see all this amazing place. Go to what the Constitution needs to be on Broadway.、Mm-hmm. And if you're rich, underwrite some tickets. Yes, please. All right then, and remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend. Bye. Bye.